The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 113. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. Okay, we are in 1 Samuel 17. This is the second of five weeks in this passage on David and Goliath. It's entitled David and Goliath, the Valley of Elah, part two. And before I read the sermon verses for today, I would like to let you know, I think I said this last week, that the... Um, uh, passage today, we're going to evaluate all of the mechanical information that is in there, the Hebrew, everything that is being said, and not until the fifth sermon are we going to tie it all in so you can see what is going on. But as we're reading it, I'm giving you all of the information you know from last week and this week. If you go back and read those and look at the Hebrew words that I gave you and the explanation of them, I bet you will be able to form the typological picture of Christ that is being made, okay? And there's a lot of them. It's not just two or three. Sergio and Rhoda touched on a couple. You're going to see things that are just absolutely marvelous out of this passage. So pay attention to the Hebrew when I explain it to you, and hopefully you'll get some uh, insight prior to Sermon 5. All right, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 12 through verse 27. Verse 12, where are we? Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons, and the man was old, advanced in years in the days of Saul. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliav, the firstborn, next to him Abinadav, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest, and the three oldest followed Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days morning and evening. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp, and carry these ten cheeses to the captain of their thousand, and see how your brothers fare, and bring back news of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and shouting for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. And David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army, and came and greeted his brothers. Then, as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. 
And all the men of Israel, when they saw the men, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. So the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel, and it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter, and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. We are at the Valley of Elah, where David slew Goliath. The passage today and in other verses to come in the Hebrew is much, much different than that of the Septuagint or Greek translation of the Old Testament. The verses from 12 to 31 are completely missing in the Greek translation, as are also verse 41, and from verse 54 all the way to the end. Of this, Adam Clark, who's someone I generally agree with, says the following, Notwithstanding what Bishop Warburton and others have done to clear the chronology of the present printed Hebrew, it is impossible to make a clear, consistent sense of the history unless these verses are omitted. Let anyone read the 11th verse in connection with the 32nd, leave out the 41st and connect the 54th with the 6th of 1 Samuel 18, and he will be perfectly convinced that there is nothing wanting to make the sense complete, to say nothing of other omissions noted above. If the above be taken as genuine, meaning the Hebrew that we just read, the ingenuity of man has hitherto failed to free the whole from apparent contradiction and absurdity. I must confess that where everyone else has failed, I have no hope of succeeding. I must therefore leave all farther attempts to justify the chronology and refer to those who have written for and against the genuineness of this part of the common Hebrew text. Clark cannot make sense of the passage because it appears so oddly arranged, repetitive, and otherwise unfathomable to him. I have always taken it in exactly the opposite view. Even though much of it is hard to follow, I feel bad for people who find that the word is in error. With a bit of study, which you will benefit from today, it is evident how beautifully laid out the word is and how marvelously detailed it all is. Charles Ellicott agrees with this assessment. He says the LXX, meaning the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translation not unfrequently adding or subtracting from the text when anything met them which they could not readily understand. The passage as we find it is undoubtedly genuine. Good job, Charles Ellicott. Our text verse comes from Psalm 33. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. A horse is a vain hope for safety. Neither shall it deliver any by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his mercy to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart shall rejoice in him because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hope in you. What a hopeful portion of scripture. 
The Lord is our help and our shield. Do you really believe that? If so, how much do you really believe that? Would you be willing to put your life on the line to find out? The fact is that all men are destined to die, well, unless the Lord comes for the church first. As this is so, then does it really? And I mean, does it really matter when it happens? Is there something that will make your possible death today worse than whatever way you might die tomorrow? The battle ranks of Israel apparently felt it was so because, as we have seen in our sermon text, nobody stepped forward for 40 days. For all we know, a few of the people of the camp might have died from boredom or from bad meat or from getting bit by a snake while lying in their bed over the past 40 days. They will be off to meet the same God that those who are coming later will meet. But how shameful it is to think that they had met him while lacking in faith during their time encamped in the Valley of Elah. Think it through. Where is your faith? It's time for you to ask yourself what you believe. Yes, I stole that line from a movie, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, but it is true. The Lord is watching us as we live our lives. Be people of faith. Have trust in his promises and live for him no matter what giants you may face. These are marvelous lessons that we can learn from his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is, and the Philistine drew near. It's verses 12 through 16. Verse 12, now David, Vedavid, and David. David was introduced into the biblical narrative in Ruth chapter 4. He was also seen several times in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He is now introduced into this narrative concerning Goliath. The name David means beloved. Verse 12 continues, was the son of that Ephrathite, Ben-Ish Ephrathi Hazeh, son, man, Ephrathite, the this. The seemingly odd wording here, that Ephrathite, is given because David was already introduced into the narrative in the previous chapter. This then is affirming that it is the same David. <laughs> Therefore, the words that Ephrathite could be paraphrased as the person who was mentioned before. Saying that Ephrathite does not mean that they are descendants of Ephraim. Rather, it designates the location where they reside. In this case, it is, verse 12 continues, of Bethlehem, Judah. Mi Bethlehem, Yehuda, From Bethlehem, Judah. David is from a line of people who settled in Bethlehem, in the land belonging to Judah. The ancient name of the same location, as is seen in Genesis 35. It was Ephrath. Depending on the root word, the name Ephrath means fruitful or maybe ashes or exhausted. Bethlehem comes from Beit, meaning house, and Lechem, meaning bread. Everybody knows it as the house of bread. However, there is a secondary meaning derived from the word Laham, which is the same spelling as the word Lechem. The verb Laham means to do battle, and it is identical to the verb Laham, which means to eat or uses food. <coughs> Thus, it also means house of battle or house of war. The secondary meaning fits marvelously into the narrative of David and Goliath. Judah means praise. Verse 12 continues, whose name was Jesse, Ushemo Yishai, and whose name, Jesse. Jesse means my husband, but it also means Jehovah exists. 
As such, the name Jesse contains the weighty notion that human marriage reflects divine revelation. Verse 12 continues, and who had eight sons, Velosh Banim, and who had eight sons. These words take the reader's mind back to chapter 16, where David was selected from among his brothers and anointed king of Israel by the prophet Samuel. There it said, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. Then the spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. The number eight, Shmona in Hebrew, comes from the word shamen, meaning fat or robust. Bullinger defines the number eight saying, in Hebrew, the number eight is shmone, from the root shamen, to make fat, cover with fat, to superabound. As a participle, it means one who abounds in strength, and so on. As a noun, it is superabundant fertility, oil, and so on. So that as a numeral, it is the superabundant number. Understanding this, there was a play on words found in the narrative of David's anointing. The word in that verse translated as oil is shamen, coming from the same root as shamen, which is the root of shmona or eight. Thus, David was anointed with oil, shemen, being the one who abounds in strength, noted by his position as the Shmona or eighth son of Jesse. You see the play on words that's going on here. Not to confuse the narrative, but as an interesting point of fact, the Greek name of Jesus, Jesus, numerically equals 888, the superabundance of the superabundant number. Verse 12 continues, and the man was old advanced in years in the days of Saul. Vehaish bime Shaul zaken ba ba'anashim. And the man in days Saul was old, went among men. The literal Hebrew wording is odd and highly debated, but the sense is either he was too old to go to battle and thus excused, or that he is noted among men, being a man of esteem. The latter seems less likely, but it still may be the case. He was too old to engage in battle, but he was also noted among men, as David seems to proudly proclaim in verse 57. Because of his state, the account continues with a note concerning the family. They were not opposed to serving, but instead were a part of Saul's army. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul. And had gone three sons Jesse, the greats, to follow after Saul to the battle. The verse begins with and, which is unfortunately left out of the translation I used, the New King James Version. The author is meticulously laying out his thoughts. Again, the Hebrew is complicated, repeating the word halak, or to go, in a seemingly unnecessary way. However, it is necessary to express a completed action. Kyle correctly renders what is being said as, and then, in Jesse's old age, the three eldest sons followed, had followed, Saul. The words are speaking of a time before the beginning of the account, which began in verse 1. In this verse, the sons are noted as Hagedolim, or the greats, signifying that they are the three eldest of Jesse. It is these three who went, verse 13 continues, to the battle, la milchama, to the battle. Here is where the secondary meaning of Bethlehem, meaning house of battle, first expresses itself in this passage. 
The word milchama or battle comes from the word laham, which we saw already as a root connected to lechem or bread. These three from the house of battle have gone to the battle, and verse 13 continues, the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliav, the firstborn, next to him Abinadav, and the third Shammah. The account specifically names the three. This then sets the tone for everything that follows, and it is dependent on what was seen in the chapter before this one, chapter 16, which cannot go unquoted. It says there, so it was when they came that he looked at Eliav and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadav and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy, with bright eyes and good-looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. If you noticed, the only three sons named out of all of Jesse's sons there are the same three who are named now in chapter 17. David is thus being set in contrast to them. Their names mean Eliav, God is father, or my God is father. Abinadav, my father is generous or my father is noble. And Shammah means desolation, astonishment, or horror. Verse 14, David was the youngest. Vedavid hu hakatan. And David, he the youngest. Again, the verse begins with and, which is left off by the translators. The word katan means youngest, but the root of that word, kut, gives the sense of what that means. Kut signifies to feel a loathing. Thus, the youngest is the lesser or least important. Therefore, the words, and David, he, the youngest, are set in complete contrast to the term hagedolim, or the grapes used to describe the three eldest. To further set the contrast, the next clause is repeated from the previous verse. Verse 14 continues, and the three oldest followed Saul. And three, the greats, have gone after Saul. Chapter 16 has already revealed the anointing of David to be king. But everything here is given to show that what is said about the Lord is true. He does not look to the externals, but to the internals. The account is slowly leading to a coming crescendo, which would be otherwise completely lacking without the methodical, step-by-step -step fine detail that is presented. And although over a much wider scale, the exact same thing is done concerning Christ Jesus in Scripture. David was introduced, and yet he continues to be described in terms which make him appear being inconsequential. And yet, it does so while making him the focus of the narrative. The Bible does the same thing concerning Jesus at times, such as in Isaiah 53, where it says this, Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. 
He has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. The parallel between the two is not to be missed. Concerning David, the account continues with verse 15. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. The Hebrew again begins with Vedavid, or and David. This then picks up the account from verse 12. There was the explanation of the three oldest following Saul, indicating that they are men of war, remaining in the camp of war. David, however, was more of an apprentice to the ways of the camp and would come and go between his house and the camp. This then anticipates what will be said in the next verse. The army of Israel will be there for 40 days. During this extended period, David, who is not a soldier and thus not expected to enter the battle, would go to his home, which was nearby, tend to the sheep, and then bring supplies back to the camp for those who remained and who would engage in the battle. Many find contradictions here and throughout the narrative. For one example, it's said in verse 1621 that David became Saul's armor bearer. That is then supposedly a contradiction to the account now. How could his armor bearer leave the camp? But it doesn't say he became the armor bearer to Saul, only that he was Saul's armor bearer. In 2 Samuel 18, verse 15, Joab is seen to have 10 armor bearers in the battle with him at one time. If so, he may have had 10 more back at the camp as apprentices. The same could be true with Saul. For every supposed contradiction, there is always a valid explanation. One other possible explanation which would resolve much of the tension between chapters 16 and 17 is that they are not necessarily chronological. Rather, the note concerning David and Saul in 1 Samuel 16, 21 through 23 may actually occur after the account that is now given. We see that all the time in scripture. Genesis, uh, Tamar, the account of Tamar in Genesis 38 is an insert right in between accounts. The whole book of Ruth is an insert into the time of the judges. So that is more than probable here as well. Either way, the narrative itself is given in a precise and particular manner to highlight the contrast between David and the surrounding people and events. With all of this understood and the parenthetical thought of verses 12 through 15 complete, the main discourse that ended last week resumes with verse 16. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself 40 days. This follows naturally in chronology right after verse 11. And it indicates that what was presented about David in the previous four verses was an intentional parenthetical statement for emphasis and contrast concerning David. Because of the layout of the land, having a ravine between the two, neither army was willing to be the first to attack, lest they be at a disadvantage and end in defeat. Therefore, during the period, the Philistine took advantage of the situation to mock Israel. This went on for 40 days. In the Bible, the number 40 is defined by E.W. Bullinger as a period of probation, trial, and chastisement where it relates to enlarged domain or to renewed or extended rule, then it does so in virtue of its factors four and 10 and in harmony with their signification. A connection can be made to this temptation of Israel and the tempting of Christ by the devil for 40 days. In this, the tempting itself is not in relation to David as the one tempted, but rather to Israel of whom David becomes the deliverer. 
In other words, Jesus is shown to be the greater and true Israel, and David's accomplishments here on behalf of Israel prefigure that in Christ. These temptings were, verse 16 continues, morning and evening, hashkem ve'ha'arev, rising early and growing dark. They're verbs, not nouns. Goliath would go out and challenge the Israelites to a duel in the early morning and in the late afternoon. What seems likely, because they are in a valley where voices would carry across the ravine, is that Goliath purposefully went out each day when the Israelites had their morning and their evening prayers. At that time, they would recite the Shema from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Yehovah Eloheinu, Yehovah Echad. Hear Israel, Yehovah our God, Yehovah One. Israel would worship at the time the morning and the evening sacrifices were conducted at the tabernacle. At that same time, Goliath would call out his taunts to Israel. Thus, he was not merely taunting Israel, but he was defying the God of Israel directly and openly. This then explains the meaning of David's words in verse 45. Then David said to the Philistines, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Forty days he has derided us. He speaks out threats and spews out bile. That giant bag of wind throws a fuss, and the things he says are loathsome and vile. Morning and evening, he keeps on saying words that are like venom from the snake, evil words that giant bag of wind is relaying, and yet we will sit here. His words we will take. We don't have the strength to challenge him who among us could even try. There is no hope. Our chances are dour and grim. Anyone who faces him will surely die. Our second thought today is see how your brothers fare. It's verses 17 through 19. Verse 17, then Jesse said to his son, David, take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these 10 loaves and run to your brothers at the camp. The dried grain means parched grain. It is roasted and will last well beyond the harvest season. Its amount is an ephah. According to Exodus 16, verse 36, an ephah is comprised of 10 omers. An omer is enough food for one person for one day, according to Exodus 16, verse 16. And so, the grain alone would take care of the brothers for more than three days. With the bread added in, it would be enough for them to have a good meal for the better part of a week. As a campaign would normally be a few days, the extended period of delay for the battle necessitated that food be brought in at regular intervals until the fighting was engaged and completed. Verse 18, and carry these 10 cheeses to the captain of their thousand. Here it says, these 10 cuts of milk. Adam Clark says that they press the milk but slightly and carry it in rush baskets. It is highly salted and little different from curds. This curds or actual cheese may be what is referred to, but the Hebrew term cuts of milk is a specific description for us to consider. This gift was probably to seek favor of the captain so that he would look positively on Jesse's sons. Verse 18 going on, and see how your brothers fare. And your brothers you shall number to peace. In other words, account for how they are doing. Verse 18 going on, and bring back news of them. And pledges bring back. Here the word arubah or pledge is introduced into the Bible. 
It is only found here and in Proverbs. Here's what it says there. A man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety, arubah, for his friend. There are several ideas of what this means. One is that he's asking for something to know that they're okay, or to guarantee that David had actually taken the supplies down, and this would prove he did, and so on. However, John Gill seems to have the proper take on it. Pay attention. He says, that is, if they had been obliged for want of money to pawn any of their clothes, or what they had with them to buy food with, that he would redeem and take up the pledge by paying the money for which they were pawned. For it is thought that soldiers at this time were not maintained at the expense of the king and government, but at their own and the families to which they belonged. This is more closely what is being referred to. David is being asked to personally carry any debt of his brothers so that the payment could be made. With this matter presented, Jesse continues, verse 19, Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. Unlike those presented by many translations, the words here are certainly Jesse's to David, not those of the narrator. It more closely is translated, And Saul and they and all the men of Israel are in the valley, the Terebinth, fighting with the Philistines. David had been out with the sheep for some period of time, and Jesse was alerted to the current situation of the army. Knowing that supplies would be needed now, and maybe even the reason for telling David to bring back the pledges, meaning they were already out of supplies and selling their things just to eat, Jesse gives these final words. Bring back news of your brothers. Tell me all of how it goes for them, too. Let me know about the battle and all the others. Have many died, or just a few? Carry these things to accomplish the task. Bring them good things from your father's house to sustain. Give them bread and milk from this flask. Refresh their souls and make them new again. Go with care, my son. The mission must be done. The sheep will be watched while you are gone. The keeper will watch over every single one. Stay tonight and begin your mission at dawn. Our third thought today... He has come up to defy Israel. Verses 20 through 27. Verse 20. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the things and went as Jesse had commanded him. The willingness of David is seen in the words, Vayashchem David Baboker, or so rose David early in the morning. Further, the care of David is seen in the words, left the sheep with a keeper. And finally, the obedience of David is seen in the words, as Jesse had commanded him. David was sent on a mission. He was given a new charge in the process and was given specifics about that mission. In this, he exactingly fulfilled his duties without complaint or delay. As such, he makes a marvelous type of the coming Messiah. Verse 20 continues, and he came to the camp, and came to the circular. It is a new word, magalah. It comes from the same root as egel or calf. Both come from agol or round. I'll tell you why calf is because a calf, when it's young, spins around and dances with joy. Therefore, it is an entrenchment, probably encompassed by the wagons of the army and thus providing protection from the camp within. This is, of course, a best guess, but it appears most likely from the words and from the concept of both warfare and defense. 
Elsewhere, the word is translated as tracks or paths or even figuratively as the ways of a person's conduct as he circles around. Verse 20 continues, as the army was going out to the fight, and the army, the going out to the ranks, the way the Hebrew reads, this is an independent clause. As David was arriving, the troops were lining up in their ranks for the battle. We need to understand some background information, much of which is speculation, but appropriate. It is about a 13-mile walk from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah. It is most likely spring. In 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring of the year, at the times when kings go out to battle. In Israel, it was way too hot to battle in the summer and way too cold or wet to battle in the autumn or the winter. The sun rises in Israel during the spring on either side of 6 a.m. How do I know? I checked. Rising early in the morning then can mean 4 or 5 a.m. When the pre-dawn light is enough, off he would go. It takes three plus hours to walk 13 miles. And David, thank goodness for Google, because I could do all this in one second. I didn't have to go out and walk 13 miles. And David, being young and energetic, even carrying the supplies, would have no problem with this. Therefore... David would have arrived sometime around the morning prayers. In fact, knowing the battle lines would be excitingly reciting the Shema at that time, which is about 9 a.m., he would probably specifically want to see that. With this in mind, his arrival would have been at this soul-stirring moment. It says, verse 20, continues in shouting for the battle, Veheru ba milchama, and shouting in the battle. It is a pregnant construction saying, in the battle. They weren't actually fighting, but were rather on both sides of the ravine, facing one another and raising a war cry against the opposing forces. David's arrival was at the time of the daily show of bravado by both sides. Although speculation, one can imagine the flow of events. The camps are getting ready for the day. At the hour of sacrifice, incense, and prayer, Israel calls out the Shema. During this time, while the forces are engaged in their calls out to their god or gods in the case of the Philistines, Goliath steps forward to defy the armies and indeed the god of Israel. But despite all of the displays of great bravado, no one steps out of the ranks to fight the champion and neither side rushes forward to take on the enemy. This is the scene that continued on for 40 days in the Valley of Elah. The entire scene is raised to the highest levels of human emotion and pride, and yet the entire scene is given to contrast what lies ahead concerning the shepherd boy named David. Verse 21, for Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army. Rather than army against army, the word used should be translated as rank against rank or battle array against battle array. It is the fighting men of the encampment that went out to fight. Others in the camp, also part of the army, would remain behind. Again, it is the bravest, most prepared, and most battle-hardened that have gone out to face the foe. The scene continues to be elevated in intensity, preparing the reader to stop and contemplate the enormity of what lies ahead when it is put into its proper perspective. With all of this crying out, flashing of spears and swords and clashing of shields, another figure comes onto the scene. Verse 22, and David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, ran to the army. The things given to him by Jesse, possibly including the payment for pledges or replacements for what they had pawned off and any other supplies David brought along for himself, were given to the care of the keeper of the supplies. 
As soon as that was taken care of, it says he ran. He ran to the ranks, meaning the men of battle lined up for war. It shows complete bravery on his part to enter into what could at any moment turn into an actual engagement of battle. As he had just arrived, he would not know that an actual battle wasn't moments away. Rather than staying in the camp until the war lines had withdrawn, he exposed himself directly into the midst of the fray on Israel's side. As soon as he arrived at next notes, verse 22 going on, and came and greeted his brothers, and inquired to his brothers to peace. In other words, he immediately asked about the welfare of his brothers. The main concern of David, even at the risk of exposing himself to danger, was the welfare of them. One might think he would ask, how's the battle going? Or something similar. But instead, his desire is the status of his brothers. It shows the heart of David for his family, and it is a heart that will be seen many times in his lifetime towards his close family. Verse 23, then as he talked with them, there was the champion, Vehine ish habenaim, and behold, man, the middleman. Here is the second and last use of the word benaim or champion in the Bible. If you remember, it signifies a middleman. The two armies had shown lots of outward bravado, but nothing more. And so to once again spite Israel, the middleman is called to the focus of the narrative. Verse 23 continues, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, coming up from the armies of the Philistines. The Hebrew is more expressive. Goliath, the Philistine, his name from Gath. He stepped out of his ranks in order to get momentum into the battle, rising up from among the Philistines and forward toward Israel. Verse 23 continues, and he spoke according to the same words. The same words means what he has called out repeatedly from verse 10 for 40 days. I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. There is a difference this day, however. Unlike the previous days, another person is there. Verse 23 continues, so David heard them. Vayishma David and heard David. The narrative is beautifully succinct. And yet it leaves no doubt in the mind of the reader that a complete contrast has been set forth between all of the fighting ranks of Israel and a shepherd boy on a mission from his father to feed his hungry brothers, make payment for their outstanding debts, and return with word about their condition to him. Verse 24, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. The Hebrew says, and all man Israel. Man is singular. Even if it is intended collectively, each man contrasted himself against the giant and as it says, fled from his face. A spirit of cowardice had filled every man in the ranks so that when Goliath spoke, it was as if each man felt he was being spoken of all by himself. In this, he did not want to be the one to step forward, nor did he want to be the last one standing alone when everyone else fled. And so they fled, it is plural, from him and were afraid. It is plural, exceedingly. The very words call out for the most complete and clear contrast that could be made between Israel, each man in Israel, and the shepherd boy who had come into the camp of Israel. Verse 25, so the men of Israel said, Vayomer ish Yisrael, and said man of Israel. It is singular. One person is speaking to David and conveys the following words. Verse 25 going on. Have you seen this man who has come up? 
Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, the king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. The first point to note concerning these words is that God is not mentioned in them. The king has promised great things to the man who kills the Philistine. Saul's expectation is that the battle will be won by men and that a man in the battle will kill Goliath. In order to spur them on to taking the challenge, he promises to enrich him, to give him his own daughter, an offering of great noteworthiness, and that the house of his father, meaning the father and all the sons, would be free in Israel. The exact meaning of this is debated. It could mean free from being drafted to war, free from taxes, and or freed from personal services to the king. Whatever the final benefit is, there would be great honor from the king for the one who would slay his great enemy. Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who stood by him saying, the question here seems completely out of place. He was just told what would be done for the man who kills the Philistine. And yet now he asks what would be done for the man who kills the Philistine. The reason it seems out of place is because the translation of the previous verse was faulty. So the men of Israel said, as we learned, it was a single person who said that David has taken the words of one man and asked them to be confirmed by many men. But even more, it is a direct challenge to all who hear. One must put himself into the time and place of the event. David hears of the rewards that will be granted for meeting the challenge. Then, certainly with a voice elevated and maybe even accusatory, he calls out to all standing by him, probably heavily stressing the words, the man. Verse 26 continues, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Even if he understands that all these things will be his if he wins, he is not looking for self-enrichment at all. He is not looking for the king's daughter, and he is not looking for exemption in Israel. Instead, he is looking much higher. Remember the words of our text verse. No king is saved by the multitude of an army. A mighty man is not delivered by great strength. David heard the supposedly exciting, but to him otherwise boring news about the king's offer, and he is almost mocking it. He has set the bounds by contrasting the two parties. This Philistine and Israel. David's care was not bound up in earthly riches. It was bound up in the honor of the Lord his God. As he next says, verse 26 going on, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? For who the Philistine uncircumcised the this? David is not looking to fight Goliath. He is not looking for glory. He is not looking to deprive his brothers of their chance to lead the family. Rather, his words are wholly intended to inspire those of Israel to do what was promised to them all along. Trust in the Lord and he will fight the battles for you. Just trust and have confidence in him. By calling him the uncircumcised, he is saying that there is no covenant relationship to God. Because of this, not only can he be defeated, he will be defeated. If the Lord is God and David had every confidence he is, then the battle cannot be lost. And to boost that to an even higher note, he next says, verse 26 going on, that he should defy the armies of the living God. For he should defy ranks God living. 
David is speaking to the soldiers, not about his challenge, but of the challenge they are to make. He's not a soldier. He has no commission, but they do. And they represent the living God. Each of them circumcised in the flesh as a sign of the covenant between them and him. Our God is alive. He's not a dead idol. Our God stands with Israel, not this Philistine. Our God is Jehovah, the living God. David is giving a motivational speech, hoping that his representatives on the battlefield will respond. Verse 27 finishes with, And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him. The verses today end on an almost hopeless note. All of the people turn right back to that which is temporary, fleeting, and of no true value. See what Saul has promised? It's just as was said by that guy, riches, a daughter of the king, and exemption in Israel. But that is not worth dying over. A dead man cannot enjoy the riches of life. Not a man had accepted this challenge even for 40 days. Not a man was yet willing to accept the challenge. Not a man stood worthy of the honor of killing the Philistine. Because not a man among them cared about the honor of the Lord, nor did they have faith in his assurances. Where will Israel get such a man? From where will their own hero arise? Not from the warring ranks of Israel, apparently. Despite the almost depressing note of where we leave off today, it is a marvelous point to do so nonetheless. We have a great and an awesome challenge set before us, and it must be met. Until then, we can think on the supposed greatness of the things we are tempted with in this life, and we can then put them in contrast to the greater things that the Lord offers us. And all he asks us to do is to simply trust in his covenant promises. That is what David attempted to do for those of the ranks of Israel, but they would not. They lacked the faith of the proverbial mustard seed, and they could neither slay giants nor move mountains. But by faith in Christ, we can not only destroy the works of the devil in our lives, but in doing so, we become children of God. And all that he asks for us in order for this to happen is to simply receive by faith what he has already done. Today, this is what I would ask of you. Think on your life. Put the things you cherish here into their proper perspective and then determine to conduct your life with the long-term view of life in Christ. Trust the Lord God, live for him, and be pleasing to the one who sent his son on a mission to bring us back to himself through the glorious work accomplished by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Please put your life in that perspective every moment of every day. Life is hard. I understand that. We have bad times. We have difficult times. We get angry. We get frustrated. We get tired. I hurt my back a week ago, and for two days I was moaning at my wife. Every time she walked by, I'd snap at her. She knew I didn't mean it, but you're in pain. You just you, you handle things differently, all of us. But when we take and put our lives in the proper perspective, we can say, because of Christ, I can overcome this. I will overcome this, and I will have a better body someday that doesn't have these pains. Right? This is where we put our trust. And if you think that you are going to make it any other way than through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, it is not going to happen. There's one way and only one way to be reconciled to God, and that is through his atoning sacrifice. You're going to see that as we go through these passages, and maybe you saw a little bit of that today. I got to the parts where I know what is coming, and I'm sorry, I broke down a little bit, but I know what the story is picturing. 
I know what Christ has done for us, and I know what he can do for you in your own life if you will simply receive what he has offered. It's so simple. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, he died for you, he was buried for you, he rose for you. This is what he asks you to believe, and that's it. You just say, I receive Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, and you will be saved. No works involved. No works involved at all. This is what God would ask of you today, so please do it. Now, I've got a closing verse for you from Psalm 20. It's verses 6 and 7. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Praise God. Next week, we got 1 Samuel 17, 28 through 40. Can he fight the battle in all that armor? I'm thinking, nah. But we shall see. It's entitled, David and Goliath, the Valley of Elah. Part three. Thank you, Jay. <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. And he has promised to fight the battles for you, which you face. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? There you go. Now, before I give you our poem and we take communion, let me turn this around so I don't had that in backwards. I made a correction this morning and I put it in backwards, so I apologize. I got lost for a second there. Um, I have a question for you. I don't think anybody's going to get this, but I'm going to ask it anyway, so you'll remember it now that uh, this happens. If you do get the answer to this question, I have a Maserati waiting for you to drive home. Okay? So here we go. We saw today, and I have said this in previous sermons, or I would not ask this question. This isn't a trick. I have said it at least in two or three sermons. So if you're astute and paid attention, you'll know this. If not, I understand. It's very, very minute point of the Bible. We saw today that the word zakain, it's a verb, means to become old. That is from the noun zakan, which means, anybody? To grow a beard. It's a noun, so it's actually beard. He got the hint. I was sitting here playing with my beard. I was, I was giving you a hint. It, it means beard because a man with a beard is growing old, right? He's, and when it gets gray like mine, you know he's getting really old. So there you go. Good job. He gets a Maserati for today. But it was not without a hint. All of you were thinking. You're like stressing your minds, and he's over watching me pick on my beard. Okay, we'll read this, and then we'll, we got a lot of verses done today. I know it was a lot of mechanical information. It will all tie together, and you'll see this in the fifth sermon. Unless the Lord comes first, may that happen. But if it doesn't, you will see this. Okay, this is entitled, David and Goliath, the Valley of Law, Part 2. Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and who had eight sons to make his heart sing. And the man was old, advanced in years, in the days of Saul, when Saul reigned as king. The three oldest sons of Jesse had gone to follow Saul to the battle. The names who went to the battle of his three sons were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadav, and the third Shammah. Those who went were these ones. David was the youngest of them all, and the three oldest followed after Saul. But David occasionally went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem until his next call. And the Philistine drew near and presented himself forty days, morning and evening, showing no fear. Then Jesse said to his son David, Take now for your brothers an ephah of this dried grain and these ten loaves, and run to your brothers at the camp again. And carry these ten cheeses to the of their thousand captain, and see how your brothers fare, and bring news back of them again. 
Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Allah, fighting with the Philistines, as the account does tell. So David rose early in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper as the situation demanded, and took the things and went, as Jesse had him commanded. And he came to the camp as the army was going out to the fight and with the battle's shout. For Israel and the Philistines had drawn up in battle array, army against army was the situation that day. Then David left his supplies in the hand of the supply keeper, according to his brothers, ran to the army and came and greeted his brothers. Then as he talked with them, there was the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, causing his regular mayhem, coming up from the armies of the Philistines, and he spoke according to the same words. So David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were dreadfully afraid. They were sorely lacking a game plan. So the men of Israel said, for sure and yup, have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And it shall be that the man who kills him, listen to what I tell. The king will enrich with great riches, will give him his daughter as well and give his father's house exemption from taxes in Israel. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God with a shout and a yell? And the people answered him in this manner, saying, So shall it be done for the man who kills him, for the one who does the slaying? Lord God, Turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you. To us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father. Thank you for this marvelous passage of scripture. Thank you that we've taken the time today to just go over it briefly and see the mechanics of it. But we know that it pictures something wonderful in the coming of our Lord Jesus, as all scripture does. Everything points to him and what he has done. And we're so thankful that he did it. He's taken away the burden. He's taken away the death and the fear of death so that we can live in your presence for all eternity in what is restored from what our first father lost. How great is that promise that we possess because of the shed blood of your son. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord, and it's in his glorious name we pray. Amen.